The Reading the Forest podcast. Poetry Now. Episode 1. Dick Bryce. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Reading the Forest podcast. And in this series, we're focusing on contemporary Forestadine poets and their latest work. Now, Dick Bryce is a much-loved and respected singer-songwriter here in the Forest of Dean and further afield. But now, in his ninth decade, he's had his very first collection of poetry published. I went to see Dick at his home at Ponce Hill to find out all about it. So, Dick, most people will know you as a, a singer-songwriter primarily. How, how long have you been doing that? How long have you been writing and performing your music? I... I started off, I suppose, um, when I was about 15, which is an awful long time ago now. Because um, I, I, I never considered myself as being musical. Uh, but I was in a play when I was at school. This is at Tommy Richards in Gloucester. And I, I was in a play and I was supposed to be playing the piano and singing a song in this particular play. It was The Ascent of F6, Christopher Isherwood. And... Um, I couldn't play the piano, but a friend of mine played the ukulele. So he taught me three chords on the ukulele, which meant I could sing this song. And then he and I used to go round doing George Formby stuff in youth clubs and places like that. We got banned from St Aldate's Youth Club for singing When I'm Cleaning Windows. <laughs> the vicar threw us out. <laughs> so you've been performing ever since then. When, yeah. when did you sort of start writing your own material and obviously a lot of people know you for material related to the yeah, forest well, and broader um, region. We used to, um, Di and I, my wife and I, used to sing with a, f- a folk group but we did unaccompanied four-part harmony, English traditional stuff. We were potentially very boring and um, we used to collect a lot of stuff from broadsheets and things like that which I started writing tunes to so that we could sing them. And then I was asked to make a dialect record in forest dialect with Winnie Foley and Harry Bennington and Keith Morgan. And I wrote a couple of things for that and then started writing more and more of my own stuff. And then we stopped singing as a group and I went solo. Di decided she didn't want to sing anymore. She'd had enough. And also... We had two children by then, so touring was a bit difficult. We couldn't leave the kids. They got too old to leave in the dressing room with the girl from the chorus line or something like that. So uh, I I went solo and started writing more and more stuff. Um, I started writing stuff for school when I I was teaching, for nativity plays and things like that. And then it sort of developed from there, really. Your material, the songs you write, actually, it covers a lot of different areas of your your interest, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I left I left teaching uh, early. I took early retirement because I the government were interfering and not trusting us to do the job that we've been trained to do, and they hadn't. And so I changed. I say I changed careers. My wife says I retired, but I started teaching navigation at night school and. I'd always sailed, and so I started teaching sailing and uh, doing boat deliveries and things like that. And so a lot of my stuff then, I started writing about the sea and sailing. 
you've put a lot of music out there in your performance, but also on on CD, you've got several CDs that have, have been released. But this is the first time that you've gone into print. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I've never never had anything printed before. And so, how how did the book come about, Dick? Well, it was strange because Di has always said um, that uh, some of my songs she thinks are better as poems. She's rather thought I'd spoiled them by putting a tune to them. Uh, and um, we thought of bringing out, uh, of publishing them as, as poetry. Uh, but I hadn't done anything about it. And then uh, a friend of ours, John Livesey, said the same as Di, that they might be interesting in, in uh, published as poems. Then Yorkley Press got in touch with me and offered to publish them which I was thrilled to bits with because I didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> and uh, and so the book came out. And so putting it together, you've got, as you say, some of your songs in there without the music as, as yeah. poems, but there's also some other, other poems in there. Is, is that right? They have never been songs. Yes, there's, there's stuff that I wrote originally as poems. Um, and there, it's in three sections because some of it was... A lot of my stuff is about the Forest of Dean, um, and so that's one section. Uh, and there's another section about the sea and sailing, and then there's another section uh, which is, is is called Songs of Love and Longing, which really is anything that doesn't fit into the other two categories. So it's in three parts, really. I mean, do you know when you're sitting down to write it? Right, this is going to be. This isn't going to be a song. This is going to be a poem, or is that a decision you uh, make? No, later I on? don't. I don't know really. I, I mean, most of my stuff was originally written as songs, but some of it comes out better as poetry. And um, a lot of uh, some of the poems in there are blank verse, which wouldn't work as a song because there's no rhyme. But most of them have got a sort of rhythm. But the ones that were written as songs have got a stronger rhythm because that is predicated by the tune. And so so poems that were written as originally as songs have got a much stronger rhythm than stuff that's perhaps written in blank verse. When you're writing a song, is it the lyrics that always come first? or No, you, it right. changes. Um, sometimes I get a tune in my head and then think there are words that, could go to that. And sometimes I'll have words in my head um, and then a tune naturally follows from that. Usually they're the ones that work best because then the tune is, is naturally follows the words rather than the words being forced to fit a tune. Something probably to yourself and fellow songwriters and fellow poets, which seemed the most natural thing in the world, which is to sit down and write a poem or write a song for us mere mortals' mind. It's quite a, it's quite an amazing thing to do. So I'm, I'm just interested. How do they, how do they sort of come to you? Do you sit down and decide I'm going to write on this particular theme, or did the lines start popping into your head, or, or Usu- how do you go about usually, it? Usually, yes. Sometimes just one line comes in your head, and and uh, I find that one of the most useful things is the computer, because it's so easy to edit on a computer. Um, you can write a song and then go back to it, and, and I've got... 
sheets and sheets of printed song, and they're all slightly uh, one song, but all these sheets are slightly different. <laughs> and I'll go back to it ten or twelve times and just edit it or add something. In fact, there was a song I wrote, not uh, well, a poem I wrote not long ago. It couldn't be a song. Um, about my father, and I went back to it yesterday. It was written about three weeks ago, and I went back to it yesterday because suddenly I thought there was a bit missing. There was a chunk that needed putting in, so I just went back to the computer and brought it up, and then you can add it in, and it, it, it it's a very useful tool, I find, for song and poetry writing. Because if I understand rightly about you know writing a poem or a song for that matter there's there's the kind of inspiration and the idea but the the form is part of it as well isn't it to make it work as a song or a poem there's a level of kind of construction there isn't it that it's got to it's got to have a some sort of shape to it and how much how much does that dictate how it ends up or, I, or what goes in? I, I don't really know. It just comes out a happenstance. Now, some of my stuff, I mean, you could analyse it and say, well, that's all written in iambic pentameter. But some of the, uh, say, the rhyme schemes, some of them are A-B-A-B, normal stuff. Frequently, they're A-A-A-B, with a final line that's different. And I really don't set out... Um, in any knowing way to construct it, 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 that's just the way it falls out. What you're saying then, it's not completely in your sort of conscious control. You you don't set out no, with a plan. It, there is a level of kind of I, mystery to that in yeah, a way. Yeah, I, I don't want to dignify it too far by, by saying it's sort of a heavy inspiration. It's... Um, I, I sit down and I work in it a bit, you know, I kick it around rather than consciously compose. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get too pompous about it. You know, I just I just sit down and if I've got something to say, then I find that's a convenient way of saying it. Let's get on to the two poems you very kindly recorded for us. Do you just want to tell us about the first one, about the coal? Yeah, well, of course, when I was a child in the forest... Now, that's the title for a book, <laughs> but Winnie Foley <laughs> got idea, there yeah. first. Um, when I was a child in the forest, the pits were still open. I mean, the last the last deep mine in the forest, NCB mine, closed when I was 14, 15? 1965, the last pit closed, Northern United. And... I can still remember the miners. In fact, my father, my grandfather, sorry, my grandfather originally was a miner, not in the time that I knew him. Um, in his later life, he was an engineer at Ediswan in Lidbrook. But originally he worked in the, uh, in the mine, but as an engineer, not as a face worker. Um, but when I was a child, uh, I can remember the miners coming tramping up past the forest church there with black faces and the old zinc bath coming off the back of the shed door and being filled up from the copper in the wash house so that they could have a bath. Um, and it was all part, that was, that was the forest. And then when the pits closed, rank Xerox saved the forest, really. I mean, there was an awful lot of people didn't approve of it, but... It really gave the forest an income. 
which it wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, but, and although there are all the advantages of the end of the coal industry, the, uh, the safety record of the mines was abysmal, but there was something about a mining community that was close and, uh, and it enclosed. I mean, the forest's always been an enclosed community because we're an island, really, between England and Wales and part of neither. Um, and the end of mining, really, was the end of that community, I feel. And it's, things are different now. Things have changed. The pithead hooters sign it now. The winding gear is still. What was a grey-blue heap of slag is now a fern-green hill. For the old men draw their pensions, and the young men draw the dole. And I've lived to see the dying of a culture built on coal. The husband on the night shift won't trudge off down the lane and leave his wife to worry he'll not make it home again. No more we'll hear the banter in our proud old forest tongue, or the old man in the corner coughing poison from his lung. No more will miners bring home weary faces grimed with dirt, or a woman old before her time scrub coal dust from a shirt. No more will anxious families gather at the hooter's sound or stand weeping at the broken bodies brought from underground. But neither will we feel the bond between a band of men who trust each other's skills upon which all their lives depend. In a time of peace and plenty, it's impossible to find the comradeship that's known to those who labour down the mine. For now our world is setting out to write another page, without the sighing of the winding wheel or the rattle of the cage. And those of us with memories are left to count the cost of what the forests gain from progress and just how much has been lost. For the pithead hooters silent now, the winding gear is gone, but in this generation still the memories linger on. There's a melancholy emptiness deep, deep within the soul that we've lived to see the dying of a culture built on coal. So this next poem is, is something very different in terms of theme. Tell us about this second poem you recorded for us. Oh, well, that <laughs> because I've just entered my ninth decade, <laughs> the Grim Reaper is looking over my shoulder <laughs> and I find that more and more of my work <laughs> looks towards um, the inevitable. Um, and... When you get to a certain age, then your friends start disappearing. And it was just about that particular one. It's about some friends who used to sail with me. Um, and we had, we had some wonderful times. Um, we had some pretty grim times as well, right, when the weather was really nasty. But those are the things you forget about. You just remember the good ones. And so that that poem really came out of that and thinking back about the times we've had and about their passing and my eventual demise. Um, and so 
that that just wrote itself really for some 40 years now we've all sailed together sometimes as skipper and often as crew in sunshine and calms and through rough stormy weather we've sailed to the south where green waters turn blue all oh, the stories and anecdotes trip off the tongue of that one close encounter we had with the whale of the bottles we've emptied and the songs that we've sung and the longer the time that's gone past then the taller the tale remember the night we made passage to france poor fred was so seasick and john lay and snored and when roger sang right through the pirates of penzance we debated which one of the three should be first overboard we sailed in the sun where the waters were warm and we've yarned through the night with the side lights aglow but now half the crews weathered the storm they finished their trick gone off watch and they've turned in below for we've seen a few suns rise up out of the sea and a few hundred more set down in the west but of all of the shipmates who sailed with me i can honestly say lads that you were the best there's Mike, and there's Chris, Fred, Will, and John Bright. They've served out their time, and they've gone on before, leaving the rest of us crew here behind, standing the evening watch here on the shore. And when my life reaches the end of the road, we'll all meet in the sunset on that final quayside, and we'll let go the warps, see the anchor is stowed, and we'll sail down the ebb at the turn of the tide. And who cares who skipper? And we'll all be the crew. For the north wind blows cold and the east wind blows keen. But we'll sail to the south where green waters turn blue. And we'll reach down the west wind to Fiddler's Green. Huge thanks to Dick for lending us into his home and telling us all about his new collection of poems. The Land Between Two Rivers, the collected poems of Dick Bryce, is out now, and you can order a copy online at yorkleypress.com. Join us for our next episode of the Read in the Forest podcast, Poetry Now, to hear Maggie Clutterbuck in conversation about her latest collection of poems, Jackdaw Summer. The Reading the Forest podcast, Poetry Now, is a Reading the Forest production for Forester's Forest with the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the University of Gloucestershire. It was presented by Dr Jason Griffiths. Mm-hmm.